Do you, you remember a few years ago during the pandemic? Yeah, we all remember that. You remember how people rushed to the stores for essential items? Notoriously toilet paper. Uh, there were shortages. Shelves were empty. Uh, and then when vaccines were, were coming along, they were close to development, talk began about what made someone valuable to society. Reprehensible conversations. Uh, do you, the, the whole thing, through the whole thing, there was a lot of comparative measuring, weighting, weighting the relative value of things, the value of activities, and the value of people. Now that probably shouldn't surprise us because this kind of thinking always happens uh, when we experience scarcity. So across the world, whenever there is a sense of scarcity, there's a set of calculations that kicks in. It's normal human functioning that a special set of considerations comes into play when we realize there's not enough to go around. We start calculating. If I'm convinced that the bread in my cupboard is going to run out, then I'm not going to feed my neighbor, I'm going to feed my children. That happens. Now, a normal human will, be, will start prioritizing whoever forms his identity group, her identity group, because at bottom, that's also a form of prioritizing the self. That is, that, that's what we do. And it's a state of fear, it's a state of hostility. That's how humans respond in scarcity. Now, when people take the God of infinite goodness, infinite goodness out of their thinking, we're always in a state of scarcity. That's always factoring in. So without a God who delights to give good things to his children, the experience of life is that there's never enough good. There's never enough good to go around. Remove the, the fountain of infinite goodness, and it's always scarce. So someone else always has something better. You're always in competition with others to achieve your plans. Your plan is set against my plan. Your cup never seems full. Now, that situation is what the Bible calls the world. The unrighteousness of men. It's the product of what the New Testament calls a debased mind. Uh, mankind fell into the death of trespasses and sins. The state of death. The Bible refers to the normal state of man as enslavement to sin and bondage, whereby that bondage, we slavishly follow the desires of the body and the mind. And thus, we can see the good things that God has given to creation, scattered abundantly. We can see them. But when we refuse to serve, this is the world, refusing to serve and love the fountain of all goodness, God himself, there is endless competition and envy for the material things that we can grasp, those good things that he's given. 
Now, in our passage today, Paul refers to this state of being as hostility. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. We're completing our Epiphany Reflections today. Uh, Throughout the season of Epiphany, we've been thinking about the tremendous benefits that God gives to us by being in Christ. Being in Christ means we have all that is part of the heavenly realms offered to us. And so we've been thinking about that, and we come now to consider the end of hostility and the gift of peace that is ours in Christ. Peace with God and peace with each other. So we return to Ephesians. That's where we started this Epiphany series. Paul began the letter with the the wondrous reality of being in Christ. The first chapter celebrates that wondrous fact. And he builds on that by considering uh, how being in Christ has changed the way believers exist in the world. Changes our The way that we relate to God, it also changes the way we exist relationally. And of course, we find that our way, the way of those of us in Christ, is radically different than than what's around us. So we're following Paul's line of thought as we come to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, where here he raises what being in Christ means for human relationships. Now, in the first, to contextualize this, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, he's laid down the radical change uh, of a believer moving from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, from being a slave to sin to being a slave to the desires of the body to having a life filled with grace and the grace and the life and goodness of God renewing our spiritual life So that 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 inner life, now made alive, gets worked out, gets expressed in thoughts and deeds. He concludes that first section, by grace you have been saved. And being his workmanship, being something he has made new, you've been created anew in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. The change in our inner life issues out in new thoughts, new deeds, a new way of being. Now, this has to reorient and realign us in our relationships as well. Because we live in a world of fear and scarcity. We live in a world of hostility. Now, the first audience of this letter, the Ephesians, They were keenly aware of this hostility. Uh, The Ephesian church was a mix of Jew and Gentile. Just to be clear, Gentile is a Latin word. uh, It means the nations. So, Paul indicates in verses 11 and 12, this term Gentiles, it's a a catch-all term for all the tribes and all the people groups that were not part of God's chosen people, the Jews. So that meant the Gentiles, the nations, which we would fall under, were separated from the promised king, alienated 
estranged, alienated, estranged, separated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, he says, having no hope and without God in the world. They, the Gentiles, they were keenly aware that they had been far off from the Creator. They had been far off from the God of peace. Their pagan religion, and we were thinking about in, in Ephesus, there are Greeks, there are um, natives of, that, of Asia Minor who had been colonized by the Greeks, there were Roman settlers, it's a mixed community, all of them pagan. And their pagan religion had two dominant concerns. Keep the gods happy so they don't interfere. I mean, that was the chief concern. It wasn't that they, they wanted the, the, the love and favor of the gods. They hardly even believed that. It was that they wanted the gods at bay. And then at times, this was everyday religion, to try to employ the gods, and these would be lesser gods, the spirits, in harming their enemies. So keep the high gods away and employ the, the lesser gods to get at those they're in competition with. So pagan religion assumes scarcity and it assumes hostility at every level. Spiritually, every level, relationally. And of course, this included hostility between followers of different gods. There was a built-in distrust in paganism between pagan and pagan, and between pagans and Jews. So there was what Paul calls in verse 14 a very noticeable dividing wall of hostility between those who were far off, the Gentiles, and those who were near, so between Jews and other nations. So recall for a moment, uh, there when Jesus was in, in Nazareth, we get the, a glimpse of how this hostility played out. Jesus aroused hatred among people he had grown up with when he merely noted that although there had been many widows in Israel, God sent Elijah to a pagan widow in Zarephath when there was a famine in the land. And then he mentioned that God used Elisha to heal Naaman the Syrian of leprosy, although there were many who had leprosy in Israel. People he had grown up with took him and tried, wanted to throw him over a cliff at the edge of the town because he had suggested that God would, would even care about pagans. Their God would care about pagans. Jews, through years of being oppressed by Greeks, by Romans, they had generated a seething hatred for other peoples. That is to say... They were tribal, and they were not exceptional in being tribal. That, that wasn't unique. In fact, in this, the Jews resembled every other people group, every other nation, in being basically tribal. So first century Jews had forgotten God's call and his commandment that they were to bless the nations. They were to bless the Gentiles. So when Jesus came to fulfill that commission of blessing, they hated him too. Now, Paul's big point here, 
is that the blood of Jesus has dealt with all this fear and hostility. The blood of Jesus has dealt with this hostility for both Jew and Gentile. Look at verses 13 to 16, heart of this passage. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Because human beings assume that there's never enough. There's not enough goodness. There's not enough kindness. There's not enough favor to go around. We couldn't imagine that God would, or that God even could, pour out so much love and so much favor that it would be available to all. That was unimaginable. But God bled himself so that his death would be sufficient for all. And therefore, the almighty gift of forgiveness, the almighty gift of favor would be God-sized. It'd be more than enough for all. The thing we couldn't imagine because of scarcity, he brings with abundance. And the law and, and its regulations had allowed, had allowed Israel channels of God's grace. There was one nation. They had these channels of God's grace. And, and it, that law had kept other nations separate. And so the other nations didn't experience the presence, the personal presence of God. God was not content with this. This was not his plan to keep it that way. It was always his plan that his people would be, uh, they would be the means by which, uh, the means by which he would bless all the nations. And so by fulfilling the law of Israel, Jesus abolished that law that kept separate. Abolished the law that demanded citizenship uh, in his kingdom would come by way of outward acts, would come by way of ordinances. So what, what Paul is saying here, because we, we tend not to think in terms of ethnicities uh, as ways of relating to God. So what he's saying is that the scope and the scale of the one who suffered has determined the scope of the gift. God overall, the creator, God almighty, entered flesh and suffered so that the scale of the gift would match who he was. If Christ is Christ only for the Jews, the gift is only for the Jews. God himself enters. God himself is Christ. And being Lord over all, his love and his gift is global. The gift matches the giver. 
So Jesus isn't just king of Israel. He's king of kings and he's Lord of lords. And so the peace and reconciliation that believers have, uh, believers of every background, it means the gift that he's given to us, it means that we all carry around in us this gift of peace and reconciliation. So everyone who, ha- who is in Christ has been given peace. The peace of God Almighty. Not for, just, not, not for peace with just our own tribe. We have peace of, of the, the Creator. Verse 17, He's given peace to those who are far off, peace to those who are near, for through or in Christ... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So are you hearing the contrast through this passage? Because it's very consistent. The peace of God, the hostility of man. Welcome, abundance, reconciliation, peace. Offered in the face of estrangement, hopelessness, isolation. Fear, hostility. Grace versus grasping. So no matter where you grew up, we reflect a lot of backgrounds here. No matter where you live now, where you live here, all around us is a world that's trapped in grasping hostility. Because there isn't knowledge or acceptance that the good God is for us and loves us. That's, what we pers- that's, that's where we exist. There is a denial that, the, that God is good and that he loves us. And there is not an acceptance that he gives everything we need for life and godliness. That is denied. And so thinking wrongly about God... People resent and resist God. And they also resent each other. The uncomfortable reality that we have to confront if we're going to be faithful is that we, those who have been given peace, often live according to the mentality and assumptions that are around us that are part of the hostile world around us. The Bible calls this walking according to the flesh or carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So although God's Spirit has brought His own peace into us as a gift, and we have it, we suppress the gift of God in us. And we act out of the shallower places of ourselves. We act out of the places that are much easier to access. They're much nearer the surface. We act out of scarcity. We act out of fear. Rather than out of assurance and peace and abundance and the truth of who we are and of God's love for us. Or we, can, we can all relate to this. I know... We can relate to this. Consider what happens when you take offense, as we all do. 
Someone says something or they do something that doesn't value you properly, that doesn't take you into account truly. Each of us, we all have thin spots, raw spots. Now, for some, this is when others assume that you're an idiot. And that's, people do that all the time. And, but, but for many of us, that's an especially thin spot. For some, it's being taken for granted as if you endlessly owe someone something and they, they lean into that. Others uh, are sensitive about your parenting or your finances or your appearance. All these are places where you, you feel or you fear a deficit. You feel scarcity. Like you don't have enough, but others have plenty. And there we become self-protective. When someone gets close to that spot, or when they bump it, we get self-protective. We become hostile. And the frustrating thing is that there's some part of our mind that tells us in those moments, you're being petty, you're, being, you're forgetting something really important right now, and you, you feel that, that uh, disequilibrium, that tension. And when fear arouses our self-protection, we are forgetting. We're forgetting our peace. We're forgetting the gift of God. We're forgetting His favor. Now, we may indeed be struggling to know how to parent. We do that. If you're a parent at all, you struggle to know how to parent. It may be a tough phase. We may indeed be struggling financially. We may have a lack of knowledge, and we feel the lack of knowledge. So it's not that we should deny our struggle. Here it is. It's the opposite. It's not that we deny the struggle. We have freedom to acknowledge it because we have peace with God and we have his approval. Because we have that, we can accept deficits in this earthly realm. We have the freedom to accept and acknowledge our deficits. And we know that our worth and we know that our value is not dependent on external display, nor on having the things or the competencies that the world around us values. That does not determine our significance. I don't have to be a flawless dad because God loves me. I don't have to be a flawless dad for God to love me. I don't have to be smart. I don't have to be well-known to be significant because I am known. I am loved. I am delighted in by the Lord of all. The Lord of heaven and earth delights in you. How can you be more significant? Is there any way you could be more significant than to have the, the joy and delight of the maker of all? And now relationally, we have what the world has lost. So when we accept 
the goodness and the peace of God. He has made us to be gifts to one another. This has been lost. Scarcity is met by abundance. So among us, here, among us, are the gifts to fill up the very real earthly deficits that we have. Those deficits we struggle with. It is our pride that keeps us from it. It's our pride that keeps us from giving and from receiving the gifts that are here. All that we need is here. It's the opposite of scarcity. Together we have abundance. Hear Paul's image in verse 19 and following. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens on your own, isolated. You're fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of this our building, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, Peter and Paul both use this image of the holy temple. Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And they're, they're communicating the significant place of each believer in relationship to other believers. No longer divided, no longer hostile. God has brought us together in Christ. And the one from whom all good things flow, God Almighty, brings all good things into our life together. Joined together in him, we become a dwelling place for his spirit. This is the shared life of the local church. And it's in that shared life, the riches of heavenly goodness, they enter the visible realm. There are all these spiritual gifts, the abundance of the heavenly realms. It enters visible life through visible people. This is new covenant transfiguration. Now the body of Christ. Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. And he revealed God's nature. He revealed his divinity there. And the apostles taught, consistently the apostles taught, that when Christians show the sacrificing love of God among us, God's character is revealed to a hostile world. We are transfigured. The glory of God is shown in us. So the peace and the goodness that God's working in each of us finds its way into the world as we share and give. This is the opposite of living by scarcity. It's living by grace. It's living with open hearts. So yes, we are going to bump into each other's thin spots. We are going to, we're going to bump those tender spots and you will feel the rush of self-defense. You're not in danger. You're not in danger. 
when your lack of knowledge or your troubled parenting or your financial struggles are touched. You're not in danger. You're actually at peace with God. You're approved. You're approved by God. And that enables you to forgive when someone bumps you in that tender spot. You can forgive. And you can offer grace. You've been given the gift of grace for you, and you can offer it. So let's live together as people who know that we're forgiven. We, live, we can live kindly and at peace with one another, offering grace because we've received it. Father, thank you for all that you give us in Christ. Thank you for making us new, giving us a new life. And we're opening up a way to live together that is strange to the world. But we pray that you would minister to us as we live together, enabling us to express and show your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name.